Welcome back, listeners, for another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. We're back for another vibrant and engaging conversation with a Georgia music teacher today that I think you'll all enjoy. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues who might be interested. And if you can take a moment to leave a review, I would really appreciate it. And now, without further delay, let's get to today's conversation. We are joined by Laura Gordy. Hello, Laura. Hello, BB. This is great. Yeah. Let's get started with just a background information question. Tell us about what you do and how you got to where you are today. Well, I've been teaching uh, for over 40 years now, and it's been an interesting long journey. It started in Macon, Georgia, with my parents' interest in music, and I started at about seven years old with Mrs. Harold Colson, and then moved on to Professor Joseph Meritz and Dr. Gladys Pinkston, who were uh, retired from Wesleyan University, and then went to the University of Cincinnati got my bachelor's there at CCM. Then I went to Rice University at the Shepherd School of Music, probably one of the first students there because it was a fairly new school now. It's blossomed into quite a powerhouse. They were kind of shopping students from CCM. And I feel like that was a very good opportunity for me in Houston. And then I met my husband there and we went to Mississippi for four years, which was Definitely an eye-opening experience, but that's where I first joined MTNA and met some wonderful colleagues that have really supported me and been good friends for many years. And that's also where I started working with Dr. Amanda Penick at the University of Alabama at Tuscaloosa, who really was a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And I, they had started a DMA program, and I did that. Then we came to Atlanta, and I started my activities here which have always combined performance and teaching uh, in various combinations. I was very interested in new music, contemporary classical composers, and was able to pull together a group of musicians here to form a new music ensemble called Thamorous. And I co-directed that for about 10 or 12 years. Uh, We did a lot of performing internationally, even a lot of recording probably over a hundred premieres and commissions for composers, helped a lot of composers from Georgia get started with those commissions. Uh, So that was a very exciting time, a very demanding time in arts administration and trying to juggle that with always having difficult new music to learn. But I was still teaching. Uh, I started taught at a community music school uh, while I was doing that and a little bit at Georgia State downtown. I decided that I wanted to move on to something a little more stable. So I went to Emory University and taught there for 17 years. And that that was also a really great experience. I, I had a lot of piano students who did very well. I had colleagues that I performed with. I had a staff accompanying position. I started working on with singers a lot more, which I absolutely adore. I mean, if I have a favorite collaboration, it's in singing repertoire. As I said, I did that for 17 years. I also learned to play gamelan. <laughs> Went to Indonesia and <laughs> did that as a sort of a side activity at Emory. 
and then I thought, well, I'll go, I'll, I want to do a pri my private studio more. So I started doing more at home and that's worked out very well because of the flexibility it's given me. I mean, I did get called back to Georgia State Perimeter by a colleague who needed somebody who did vocal accompanying and, and more difficult instrumental accompanying. So I did teach a performance class there for a few years uh, and did some staff accompanying. But now I am, since COVID, I, I pretty much have, I cut back to a about half of the size of the class I had. And I really took that as a time to reevaluate and rest and make sure that my my health and mental state was as good as it could be to figure out what it is that I want in this next period in life. Um, I definitely have been slowing down a little bit this last year <laughs> with some family responsibilities with my mom moving near me. She's 92 and I, this year has been intense with uh, things that she's required, but that's where I am right now. It's been an interesting journey. So there's a lot of interesting things to unpack there. Um, the first follow-up question I'd like to ask is you very briefly mentioned about starting music because of your parents. Were they musicians or were they just music lovers? What was their relationship with music like? My mom especially loves music and it's her great regret that she couldn't start learning piano earlier because she probably would have been a very good professional musician if she'd had that opportunity. So she wanted to make sure I had access to lessons early. But her attitude was that if I didn't practice, they weren't going to pay for lessons. <laughs> and since I liked it, I, I practiced not uh, probably enough in the beginning days. And then something happened, especially after I went to Dr. Joseph Merritt's. I saw it uh, I don't know, at some point I understood that this was the language that spoke to me really, really deeply and that no matter what, I wanted to find out more about it. And that's really what it has been for me. It's a chance to live in a world I wanted very much. So it's a calling rather than a profession in some ways. It still is a very deeply satisfying experience to me emotionally and psychologically to sit down at the piano and express myself that way. Yeah. And then you also mentioned about being in that first wave of students, maybe first class of students at Rice University. What was that like? And I imagine in those beginning stages, they were probably trying to figure out what kind of school they wanted to be. And obviously now it's a very prestigious institution. So what was it at the beginning that set it up to become such a strong program now? Well, they had a huge endowment <laughs> to start and they were really targeted. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were going to start a major conservatory program. So they started, uh, there were several faculty members that had come from CCM there. I remember um, at least one theory, no, two, two composers and theory people, uh, a musicologist. They had Mary Norris Tipton and her husband, who was an internationally known flutist, and, and Mary had played with him all over the world. They had uh, principals of the Houston Symphony there. Uh, they were really pounding it in terms of getting the talent there. And they were very generous in buying graduate students. So I went there for my master's. And so there was a good stipend and a lot of, a lot of very hands-on 
one-on-one -on -one kind of contact seminars. I mean, I remember one fabulous musicologist that I studied like Mozart operas with. I had a lot of opportunities to perform as a accompanist. So I, I also had a part of my stipend was I, I did a listening session, review session in music history. I did accompanying. I did some, I started doing some teaching then, uh, piano teaching as well on the side. I, I thought, I think it was, they knew what they were doing and it was a very, uh, I had a lot of attention. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you for allowing us a glimpse into that institution's history. So you also mentioned your interest in new music. What uh, started that interest and what is so interesting about new music to you? Well, you know, when I think back about it, I think I was always fascinated by it. You know, one of the things I did to expose myself to music when I was in high school was I'd go to the public library and I would check out anything. And they had a very interesting assortment of classical music. And I remember some of the things now that I heard thinking, well, that is, that really grips me. And things like Music Concrete by Pierre-Henri called Variations on a Door and a Sigh, which was one of those things where they used non-musical sounds to create things. So, so I've always been, my ears have always perked up. I remember going to the Atlanta Symphony when I was in high school, hearing uh, Peter Serkin play the Schoenberg uh, Piano Concerto. And again, my ears perked up, you know, this ponytail guy in blue jeans playing Schoenberg. Like, yes. <laughs> and then Shaw was a big promoter of new music. So I remember hearing uh, an early performance of the Bernstein Mass there and things like that. So then when I went to Cincinnati, that was one of the things that I that was available. The, the composers were always looking for people who try out their music. I mean, I remember one performance where uh, the composer had me banging on the keys with my arms. I had bruises <laughs> for days, <laughs> but it was exciting. I mean, you, it, and the idea of first meeting the composers, getting their direct feedback, feeling like you were doing something for the first time, and that you could contribute in a way that wasn't repetition because I, I was I felt that even though I love playing classical music you know all the classics I felt well, what how is this going to translate into performance career because I felt that there were so many people who did that and better than I could ever ever do it that I thought well this is a niche for me and then of course I met musicians in Atlanta when I came here who were interested in it and uh, it it just took off from there. Yeah. So new music has, I feel like, many different styles. So I guess my follow-up question to that is, have you stayed in touch with the development of new music into today? And where do you think it's going in the future? Like, what are composers doing now? And what does it foreshadow for what's coming our way in 10, 20 years? Boy, that's a very interesting question. I honestly cannot say I'm on the cutting edge anymore. I had to admit that at some point, probably around, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. I said, this is, this is not, you know, I'm not really right out there the way I was in, say, 1990. <laughs> uh, but I did play two new music concerts last year, in fact, first concerts after COVID. And, you know, I it was so much fun. I played toy piano as well as grand piano. Uh, there was a, a composer, a young woman who had connections with Atlanta, who was back for a 
a retrospective of only her work. And it was so much fun. And the other one was a diverse program, different styles. I recognized most of what was going on just fine. It seemed like it's a continuation of what was in the wind in, say, 1970, 1980, 1990. It's still there. The minimalist impulse, the multicultural impulse was there. And one of the things I did when I was running Thamrus was produce a recording of African-American composers' music. And I, you know, I think... I think there is a future for it and, and technology has been the big change, of course. I think that's probably where uh, I have to stop at that. I have done some work with combining technology with music back in the old analog days and the early computer days when they were using disc clavier, things like that. But now I, if somebody wants me to play some, some form of acoustic music <laughs> or even in different keyboards, I'm, I'm happy to, but. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't really say where it's going, but I'm I excited. Wonder, it's still going. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if your love of performing new music has translated into your teaching. Do you teach new music to your students? And if you do, what's that reception like? Well, it varies from student to student. I'm very much a teacher who tries to find what excites the student. And sometimes you get a student who's extraordinarily gifted and really they want to play Liszt and Rachmaninoff. And you have to honor that until they grow to the point where they're willing to accept other styles. Others are right on top of it from the beginning. You know, I've got a little six-year-old that I swear she wants to play Stockhausen because she's improvising all over the piano already. <laughs> and she's kind of, she, her enthusiasm is something to behold. Uh, but I honestly, I think it's, I think the way it influences my teaching is more in my attitude toward the older music. For one thing, I'm not very dogmatic about things being done one way or the way that I learned them. And I also understand that for them, all that is new music. They are seeing it for the first time. So we have to work out together how to do things. That's what I kind of learned about playing new music is you've got to be creative. You've got to think through the physical realities of how to do that. you got to think through how to communicate this, how to make this gesture sound like a phrase, you know. And I feel that the basic musicianship aspects of new music are very similar to playing Beethoven well or learning an invention or, and, and also, I'm very grateful that there are a lot of really good pedagogical materials these days that mix up the styles. So if you want to add, you want to throw in something, you know, you can look at the celebration series. There's always something that throws in something that is definitely getting them ready for, say, notational things. So does that give you some idea about how I approach it? I, I don't actually insist on they do a lot of it but you know in a balanced program they are always going to do their baroque and their classical and their romantic and their more modern piece so it all works its way in there yeah that's great so let's do a deeper dive into your teaching and your journey as a teacher how have you changed as a teacher over the years and through all your vast array of experiences well i i think that i'm a probably more present in my teaching than I was when I was doing so much performing. Quite honestly, that takes such a mental toll that I, I don't think that my students were always my first priority. 
and and now they really are. And I am teaching younger students now than I have in the past. What I feel that I offer them is this sense that what they do from the first day of lessons might play out in a career 20 years down the road. So I see the whole road and why it's important that they get a good foundation. And I often think, you know, we all attribute a lot of our success to the teachers we had in college. That's not really the, the whole truth. It's the people who got us through all those bumps, the six and seven year old age, the 11, 12 year old age, kept us going and made sure that we didn't get into trouble along the way, either you know with injury or uh, not having what we needed. So I, I'm, my thought is when a student comes to me, I don't know what their path is going to be. It could just be a basic musical education experience, which everybody needs to have and unfortunately doesn't. It's part of being an educated person is to under something, understand something about your musical traditions and notation and the basics of rhythm, melody, you know, basics. And then beyond that, there is the expression of their own personality and individuality and their brain development and their their ability to concentrate, their ability to handle stressful situations and have the psychological tools not to freak out in public. They learn that aspect of self-control and self-awareness from playing the instrument. And then beyond that, it is a, a big help for loneliness and depression <laughs> when you have some way of touching the emotional core of music as well. So it has so many uses for people that I always keep that in mind, that it's part of a complete human experience, but that the teacher has to be rather insistent that you have to keep the highest standards in mind while you, you deal with the realities of who these students are, what you can, what they can do and what are willing to do. And then if they decide, you know, at 12, no, I, this is really not for me, then you know you've given them a good basic musical education and you can say, it's been wonderful to know you. I hope you know you have a great time in your next endeavors. <laughs> and then for the ones that really want to go on, like I had one boy, I, I, he amazes me. He went to the Van Cliburn competition, not as a contestant, but as a sophomore in high school and sat through every single event. This boy is now at Interlochen in the residency program, finishing up high school. You have students like that. And you just have to do your best to keep up with them sometimes and to make sure they, they play in master classes and they, they get input in, in summer programs and have <laughs> a very rich musical environment. What do you tell parents or what is your conversation like with parents in terms of what their role is as a parent of a student who is studying music? I've been really fortunate with the families that I've worked with. I will say that... Uh, among them, there are a lot of people where the parents are very, very educated or have some background in music themselves. So I haven't had to explain it a lot. That's been very helpful. I mean, I will say if you're uh, the things that a parent really needs to do <laughs> along the way are make sure the child has an adequate instrument. That can mean different things for different people, but it has to happen fairly soon after they begin. And then a, a quiet space that they can practice if possible. It, it, I know it's a big sacrifice of space in some modern homes to do that, but that's really necessary. 
And then the other is to understand the importance of, of daily re repetition. It isn't something that you can just do occasionally when you have time. It has to be scheduled in and it, a part of the consideration when you're thinking about whether you have time for lessons or not. And I also encourage, especially if children are young, I encourage the students to come in and observe the lessons. Now, I find it very helpful when the kids are young because they can help with their practicing in some way. I find it kind of interfering as they get older when the children are more independent-minded and really want some separation from their parents. I have had, so I've had them over-involved and then I've had ones who just drop them off when they're young and then I have to say, no, um, they are gonna need some help at home. And then aside from that, that seems to be adequate <laughs> for me. Yeah, you talked about having parents um, sit in on lessons, especially with the younger ones. I wonder, does do you find in that experience, in that in general, does that help with behavioral issues, or does that cause behavioral issues? That's an interesting question. I try to stay in control of the situation and not have the parents intervene. So if they think their child is acting up, I try to discourage them from, from saying anything about it. Let me handle it. Because this is part of me developing a relationship with the child and also understanding their psychology a little bit more. It, it hasn't come up too much. In terms of behavior, you know, I, I, it was a big, big eye-opener for me when I started teaching the younger ones again. It really started when one of the parents wanted me to teach a younger sibling at four. <laughs> and I thought, I have no idea <laughs> if I can do that or not. I just started with small bits of lessons and got the older sister to kind of supervise at home a little bit. <laughs> and I saw a lot of kinds of behaviors I had to be very patient with. And I, I see them outgrow things. Mm -hmm. And I see them trying to express things that are important, like anxieties they're feeling. Like I had one little girl who, I felt like she was feeling super pressured. You know, she was like maybe had too much going on, too many expectations on her now that she, you know, gotten into, I guess she transitioned to school, you know, where it was a little bit more rigid and she was trying to do some extra language things. And she was trying to, I mean, she was just, she was feeling a lot of pressure. <laughs> and so that would, they sometimes they act that out, like think, well, I don't want to do piano. Well, they don't, it's not that. It's they need more time, more mental space. And the kids are overscheduled a lot. So that's something to keep in mind. That's that's an interesting conversation you can have with the parents. Yeah. But it isn't always a solution. I mean, I've got some kids who are competitive swimmers and they're not giving that up. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm almost asking this question selfishly because you know, in the past I in general started students when they are school age, but nowadays it seems like I have more younger and younger students. You know, I have um, parents approaching me wanting me to teach their 4-year-olds and 5-year-olds and it seems like they come with their own set of behavioral challenges that I've never really had to deal with with a six or seven year old you know if they come at the end of a long day at school at preschool or daycare they act completely different than a six-year-old might after a full day of school and so I, I'm it seems like for me personally I'm struggling to find the balance of how to give them space and grace knowing that they've gone through a long day and then also still have a productive lesson I just wondered if you had any insights or nuggets of well, wisdom for that I have a trick actually that has seemed to work pretty well 
I have four different keyboards in my studio. One is a toy piano. One is an electric keyboard. Then I have an upright and I have a seven foot grand. And sometimes you can do part of a lesson on a toy piano, you know, or you can just, I, I find that what I can do is keep changing what I'm doing with them and realizing how short the attention span is going to be. So if they won't focus on notation, then, then I find another way around that, you know, and they don't often. So I'll teach them something by rote. Or if they just can't get the rhythm, then I get take out the drum, have them move around. So I, I keep trying to approach it from different ways. So I say, I know my agenda this week is to try to get their, their rhythm better under control. Okay, they're not, it's not all gonna be counting in metronome work, not at all. I, I will use everything that I know about how where rhythm comes from and make it a little bit of a play activity. I'm not super at that because as I said, I haven't taught that many of them, but I did find that keep changing it up and let them move around, not have to sit still was a big part of it. Yeah, I like that a lot, actually. That just that idea unlocked something for me because I do have a toy piano at home. Um, and so perhaps what I need to do is just bring it to my teaching studio and try it out with some of my little kiddos. They might enjoy that quite a lot. Thank you for that. And the other thing is I find that if you if you let them play with the settings on the electric piano, they'll play through their pieces again. If they're, you're, they're doing it with a vibraphone setting or a harpsichord setting, you know, they'll play them for you numerous times when they were really tired of doing it on, on the grand. Sometimes it's physical discomfort, too. They just get tired of sitting. So, yeah, great. So it seems like you've had a long and varied career. So I wonder what aspects of your life and career as a musician has surprised you? That I am still as interested in it as I, as I am. That uh, it doesn't seem to have waned after over 40 years. That, that it still feeds me on some very deep level. So I guess that means I made the right choice. <laughs> Even though there were times when I'm sure my parents doubted it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you got a, an academically talented kid, you don't necessarily want to see them become a musician for practical reasons. But I've been fortunate it's worked out well. I've got a great husband. I've been married for 42 years. He's been a big supporter of me in all the different transitions I've made. So um, I think when I look back on it, the things, some of the things that maybe young people can keep in mind is that you get really impatient when you're young, but you got you to gotta pace yourself. I mean, if you're going to have a long career, it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? So you've got to take time to take care of yourself and your relationships along the way. And you need to realize that as kind of a fake world as we have in a lot of ways, people always trying to present you know, an image of themselves. This is the as real as it gets. You can't fake it. You know, you get on stage, you cannot fake it. <laughs> it shows you and your audience everything about you, your strengths and your weaknesses. And if you can't confront the fact that you have weaknesses and acknowledge them without being afraid that that is somehow going to make you appear less in the world, then you really are going to have a fearful career. You just have to, you really have to know yourself. You have to figure out what can I do that is going to be a contribution and what had I, had I better leave alone because 
maybe I can do that privately, but it's not going to be for public consumption. <laughs> and the other thing is, of course, that we have to treat, we have to try to adapt to the changes in society and technologies that come along. One thing that I love about the new technologies is that you can find so much music that you couldn't when I was coming along. If you develop a taste for it, you know, those algorithms will help you into a world of music that I could only dreamed of. You know, I used to lie in bed at night trying to find the uh, radio stations that I could tune in that would be long distance that would play some classical music. It was so rare. I mean, I had to have a record of the month club, you know, where I would pick out a record and then they'd mail it to me from, and things like that. It's now, it's like, it's there. So we just have to be sure that we curate that for ourselves and not get sucked into the junk that's out there as well. That's fascinating. I've never heard about Record of the Month Club. Can you tell me a little more about what that's like? Were you, did you get it on a like a borrow basis? Like you had it for a week and then you had to return it or did you get to keep no. it? You, you kept it. That was one of the things that my parents let me do. They, they were big believers in having subscriptions to magazines and, you know, to have access to things. I remember Nonsuch was a, a label that was featured quite a bit, but it, every every month you get a catalog, or maybe there was just one catalog, I don't know, but each month you would select something and, and buy it, and then they'd mail it to you. And I had a little, you know, I had a box-like little record player, and I would listen to it. I remember some of the things, though, that I heard that just, like, amazed me, like, drew me so much. There was a, the first time I heard the Bach double violin concerto with the uh, David Oistrakh oh my God, <laughs> it was astonishing. You know, there's things like a, there was an oboe concerto by Telemann that I heard that just, and then there, then my parents had some recordings as well. And with the public library being another resource, I remember the first time I heard the Tchaikovsky Sixth Symphony, you know, it's like just heartbreakingly beautiful stuff. So that was how you access things. And occasionally you would go to a public performance, but you know, um, it wasn't really common except that on the college campuses in, in Macon where you could really hear those in yeah. classical music. That's great. Thank you for that. I love that. I love that idea of browsing through catalogs just to find music. That's um, something very charming and sweet and uh, innocent about that. You know, and, and I do realize there's something wonderful about the algorithm feeding us things and being able to taste. And, you know, a, a lot of times I'll turn on a recording and I won't like it. And so I'll shut it down after 10 seconds. But it feels very much like you make a commitment when you order something from a catalog and you treasure it because it's so rare and we don't treasure things in the same way. I, I had a recording of uh, Arthur Rubinstein playing the D minor Mozart concerto on one side and on the other side was the Haydn variations in F minor and I loved his performance of that so much I wore it out if I tried to listen to the recording now you'd hear nothing but hiss and crackle <laughs> because I, I just wore those records out <laughs> That's wonderful. So I think we've started touching on this, but I'm going to ask this question anyways. What do you see will be the future and role of classical music in society into the 21st century? <laughs> That's a hard one. It's such a, a treasure in our 
cultural heritage. And there are many, many people who are studying it. But I, I do find that for the most part, I don't think kids are studying it as much. I, I don't think it's as prevalent or I don't think it's in society in the same way it was then. Like, you know, it was accompanying cartoons when I was a kid. Now I understand that it's accompanying video games occasionally, you know. So maybe it's still, it, see, it has to creep in because kids don't go to long concerts. So it has to be there in the cartoons and the video games and the, you know, TV shows. It has to, it has to be part of it. It really hurt me a lot when our local NPR station stopped focusing on classical music. It was the only outlet. And they decided to go to talk radio like everybody else. Please, we've got enough of that. What we don't have is a, a regular feed of really, really good music. So I think uh, even though you can search for it and find it easily, you got to hear it first to know that that's what is really working for you. So I'd like to, it to be more present. And that means I'd like it to go back into the schools a little bit more so that they are actually hearing that. And I know that there's so much else they need to cover, but they don't need to lose this important part of our tradition. It, it has too much meaning for people. And in terms of playing an instrument, it does things for your brain physiology and your psychology that no amount of digital manipulation is going to do. I mean, this is a very kinesthetic connection between your ears, your eyes, your hands, your emotions, and your brain structure. It is not duplicatable by becoming merely a spectator. You actually need to participate in it to get those benefits. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you for being a promoter of the importance of music in society and for articulating that so beautifully. This is going to be our very last question. What advice would you give to young pre-collegiate musicians about a life with music? It is going to be unpredictable. You are going to feel that you're not good enough. You're going to feel that there's no place for you. But if you're persistent and creative and really look at all the options out there, you'll find a place. But it is something you have to commit to with your whole heart and realize that you better enjoy the process because you cannot predict the outcome. And you better be practical along the way and make sure that you have your financial ducks in a row so that you can you know, cover the basic costs of your life. Don't give up, but don't be stupid. <laughs> That's great advice. Very blunt, very straightforward, but great advice. And it seems like it's advice that you yourself have followed because it sounds like in your life, you found a niche that you can really grow yourself and make yourself into someone that can contribute to the musical culture around you. So Thank you for that, Laura. This has been a wonderful, delightful conversation. I've really enjoyed meeting you and hearing your stories. And thank you for sharing a glimpse of history with us. You, you carry that with you around. And so what a treat for us to get a glimpse into that, that past and that's come with you as part of your life journey. So with that, I wish you happy teaching and happy students. <laughs>